Thank you, Daryl and Tina. Thank you, Keith, for praying. First Peter chapter 3, uh, verse 18 is where we're going to be at this morning. If you uh, remember, we're walking through First Peter. It's this book written to these elect exiles of the dispersion that have been spread out across uh, Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey. They're facing uh, not political or governmental persecution at the, the moment Peter is writing this, but their persecution's coming. Uh, and they know it, and Peter knows it. And so much of this letter is written by Peter to kind of address this is what's coming, and here's how you need to, to react. Here's how you need to, to do these things. Here's how you need to take care of business as a believer in Jesus Christ and follow after him. Last week we looked at verses 13 through 18 which talks a lot about why bad things happen to, to, to us. And, and I told some people earlier that we, we stopped early last week. We really did about half of the sermon, called it good, because verses 19 through 22 are some of the most argued about and most debated passages in all of the New Testament. So we're, gonna, we're much smarter than everybody else. Uh, everybody who's ever lived, just right here, we've got our collective knowledge, and we're going to sort all of these things out. We'll get everybody else straightened out, and then we'll be good to go, right? No, nobody wanted to amen that one? Okay. No, we'll walk through it with humility. We'll walk through it with grace. I'll walk you through why it's so debated, why it's so argued, what some of the, the issues are. But when we zoom back out from the end of it, the picture that God gives us here is clear. So let me read First Peter chapter 18. Verse 19 through uh, 22, we'll pray, and then we will work through it verse by verse like we always do. For Christ also suffered for the sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring you to God. He was put to death in the flesh, but made alive by the Spirit, in which he also went and made proclamation to the spirits in prison, who were in the past disobedient when God patiently waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared. In it, a few, that is eight people, were saved through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as the removal of dirt from the body, but as a pledge of the good conscience towards God. Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God, with angels and authorities and powers subject to him. Let's pray. Father, as we come to this passage of scripture that is difficult, this passage of scripture, God, that just sheds a light on some things that you haven't fully revealed to us. I pray that you'd help us to have humility, to recognize that you are far beyond us, that our finite minds cannot comprehend your infinite. Pray, Father, that you would use your word this morning. God, just because it's hard for us to understand and just because it's beyond us doesn't mean that it's not good for us. It doesn't mean that it's not profitable. We know that all of your word is inspired by you. All of your word is for us. All of your word reveals yourself to us more and more. And so help us, God, to glorify in you. Help us to magnify Jesus this morning. And it's in your name we pray. Amen. Verse, uh, actually, let's start with this. Um, much of this passage is set in the context of undeserved suffering. And this week of all weeks has just been a week where I have received more news and more reports about sufferings and hardships with some of our missionaries that we support and care for. 
uh, Tinian, which is the church we help serve in New Mexico. Their fellowship hall burned down a few Christmases ago, and the, the construction's kind of being delayed on getting it started and rebuilt. And so they're gathering in a building that half of it is burned, and then the other half is still up, and, and just a struggle to find a pastor who will proclaim the word to them. Uh, I got a, an email from some missionaries from Belgium this week that work with the, in a, uh, the North America or the International Mission Board who are wanting to talk and just pray for our church. But they told me where they minister to in Namur, Belgium. It's among French-speaking Belgians, which is less than one percent evangelical believers where they're at. I listened to a lady tell her story this week on a podcast uh, who was in Afghanistan when all of the American troops left and people were trying to get into the planes. Well, what her and her husband had done is they had converted to Christianity. They were Muslims, converted to Christianity. Her husband was her her pastor, and so they were the first people in Afghanistan on their government-issued IDs to list their religion as Christians. They went through all sorts of red tape. As soon as it gets on their government IDs, America leaves, the Taliban invades, and they become headhunted by the Taliban. She told stories on this podcast that just frightened me of, of her prayer in the midst. They're running from place to place, sleeping on the floors, hiding all these random places. Trying. There's people in the United States praying for them that are in contact with them, but they're not able to get on a plane. They're not able to get out. They know that the Taliban is looking for them because they have Christian written on their IDs. They're looking to kill them. And so the wife was the one who was talking, and her prayer was that they would kill her first. That's what she was praying and asking people to pray for her. She didn't want to watch her husband suffer. She didn't want to watch her kids suffer. And the reason they put that Christianity was their religion on their ID is because they wanted us in the West, in the United States, in Texas, in Iowa, they wanted us to know that there are Christians in Afghanistan. I got this this email from Jill uh, Holmes. I just want to read it to you. Uh, March 4th. Uh, this, this is uh, Mike Holmes's daughter-in-law at Mozambique. March 4th marks four months in our time, uh, of our time uh, in prison for our friend, teammate, and fellow MAF pilot, Ryan. Through your prayers, many of those around the world, Ryan has been strengthened by the Lord, though the chal- uh, this challenging time has stood as a strong witness for Christ to those around him. At the end of four-month Mozambique law requires prosecutors to file the results of their investigation with the judge, and since the four-month period ends on a weekend, we anticipate the report on March 6th. However, we have learned through this journey that the dates are often fluid and action may not be expected. We're asking churches, missions committees, Sunday school classes, and individuals to pray for the prosecutor. Uh, pray that the prosecutor will not charge Ryan and the two South African men with supporting terrorism and immediately release them from jail. They were arrested November 4th as they were preparing to load supplies on a plane to a Christian orphanage in the northern part of the country where insurgents have been attacking towns and the infrastructure. Pray that justice be done and that they will be released. If you remember the story we shared around Christmas time with our kids, Ryan is a pilot for Missionary Aviation Fellowship in Mozambique, and they were loading up supplies, like they said, to take to the orphanage. And the supplies were medical supplies for these orphans, and they were arrested because they said they were smuggling in drugs, and they are still in prison as we gather this morning. We read stories like that, and it's important for us to read stories like that because they're foreign to us. We don't have that in Ira. We don't have that in Texas or in the United States. That kind of struggle and that kind of persecution doesn't exist here. I read them because it reminds us that's what Peter is telling these people. Those are the situations that Peter is trying to encourage people in. 
And so when he says in verse 18, For Christ also suffered for our, uh, for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring you to God. He was put to death in the flesh, but made alive by the Spirit. Peter is saying something to those who are being persecuted or, or uh, who are wrestling with their faith, who are in the midst of people who are trying to get them to not be Christians, to limit their influence. Peter says he was put to death in the flesh, but he was made alive by the Spirit. If you have the King James Version of the CSB, it says by the Spirit. If you have a different version, it probably says uh, not by or in. If you have the ESV or the NASV, Spirit is probably lowercase, but if you have a different translation, it's probably uppercase. The reason why is, is because it's a nuanced meaning. It could mean that Jesus was resurrected by the Holy Spirit, which we know from other places in Scripture is true and is often told to us in the Bible that Jesus was raised by the Spirit. But it also could mean that Jesus was made alive by his own Spirit. It just depends on how we want to take it. But either way, what we're looking at here and at this point is that uh, the Spirit was God, either Christ or the Holy Spirit. All of this is important because the next verse that we get to in verse 19, in which... Right, so talking about the Spirit, in which he also went and made proclamation to the spirits in prison who in the past were disobedient when God patiently waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared. In it, a few, that is eight people, were saved through water. Lots of questions come up here. So we're going to walk through this slowly, uh, but, but I want to read to you uh, first. This is the Apostles' Creed. Anybody heard the Apostles' Creed? one of the oldest documents we have on what Christians believe. It wasn't written by the apostles. It was written by the early church on what the apostles believe. And in the Apostles' Creed, which a lot of more high church, like uh, people who dress up real fancy with their preachers have the collars, those churches will read the Apostles' Creed oftentimes. I just want to read to you one line in here that often gets a lot of attention. Uh, it says, on the third day he rose again from the dead, talking about Jesus. He, uh, sorry, uh, he suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and buried. He descended into hell, and on the third day he rose again from the dead, and he ascended into heaven. That's in one of the oldest documents of Christian history that we have on what we believe and don't believe. So what are they saying? And this is the text that they'll often cite when we look at these things. Well, let's look at what Peter says here. He doesn't say that, that he uh, went down. All Peter says is that he went. In verse 19, in which he also went. And he makes a proclamation is, is what the CSB says. There's two words that could be used. Just the way he's saying this is not, it was not a gospel proclamation. It was just him proclaiming something. Teaching something. Saying something. The word he uses here is less important on what is being said and more important on what he is doing. So Jesus goes somewhere, he makes this proclamation, and what the proclamation is, is it's a victory proclamation. He's announcing that because of his death, because of his resurrection that's this coming, he has defeated sin and death. So who is he talking to? He's talking to these spirits, is what we're told, who are in prison, who in the past were disobedient. So who are these spirits? Everywhere in Scripture, in the New Testament especially, when, when spirits is used, it is not talking about a human being. It's talking about someone, uh, an angel, a demon. So in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 14, it says this, uh, Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve those who are going to inherit salvation? That's the author of Hebrews talking about angels, spirits. 
In Luke 8, 29, Jesus says this, For he commanded the unclean spirits to come out of the man, and many times it had seized him. Though he was guarded, bound by chains and shackles, he would snap the restraints that had been driven by the demons into the deserted places. And so there, Jesus is using spirit to talk about a demon, a demon-possessed man. So it's not humans that Jesus is talking about. But then he has this weird line about Noah's ark. If you remember uh, Noah's ark, it's my favorite uh, Old Testament story that we use in nurseries that probably shouldn't be in nurseries, right? Eight people live, the rest of the world dies, let's paint it for our babies to see. In Genesis chapter 6, verses 1 through 4, Moses records this. And when mankind began to multiply on the earth, the daughters were born to them, and the sons of God saw that the daughters of mankind were beautiful, and they took as they... Any they chose as their wives for themselves. And the Lord said, My spirit will not remain with mankind forever because they have become corrupt. Their days will be 120 years. And the Nephilim were on the earth both in those days and afterwards when the sons of God came to the daughters of mankind who bore children to them. For they were were the powerful men of old, the famous men. Now, we're going to dive a ton into that. I don't know if you remember. I preached through Genesis. Uh, Feels like a while back. There is a sermon online that is over that text of Scripture. If you're interested in one or more, it's called Unexpected Grace. You can search it on the website, find it, and it'll walk you through all of the stuff with that text of Scripture. For our concern this morning, we need to figure out who did Jesus go and make this proclamation of victory to. And what we can see that's clear is it's not human beings, but it's spirits that were disobedient. Spirits that that did not um, obey. So, who are they? Well, in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 4, right, the next letter Peter writes, he says this, For God did not spare the angels who sinned against them, but cast them into hell, and delivered them in the chains of utter darkness to be kept for judgment. Jude 6 Jude didn't have chapters, it just has verses. Jude, verse 6, says this, And the angel who did not keep their own position but abandoned their proper dwelling has kept the eternal chains in the deep darkness for the judgment of the great day. So these are not human spirits that Peter's talking about. So what is the prison, then, that they're being kept in? Many people will say hell, and the Bible has a lot of names for hell. Hades, Gehenna, the Lake of Fire, Hermley, etc., just kidding. We played in Westbrook. It's Westbrook. <laughs> Prison is not a name for hell in the Bible. And we know that Jesus didn't, couldn't have descended completely to hell because when he's on the cross in Luke twenty three forty two, he says this to the prisoner who just got saved on the cross, Today you will be with me in paradise. So it's not hell that we're thinking of that that is talking about Jesus. It's this other place, this other prison. So much of this is a struggle because our understanding of heaven and hell are often um, lacking. The only time we really want to contemplate those things, the only time we really want to think about those things is after somebody has died that we're close to, a relative, a friend, a family member, whoever it is, and then we begin thinking about heaven and hell, but we're doing so in a state where we're emotionally probably not in the best spot to be thinking about deep theological things. So let me just give you the summary. Heaven is about God. It's not about you and me. If your version of heaven is you never deal anything with Jesus and instead you just get to eat all the oatmeal cream pies you want and never gain a pound, maybe heaven that you're envisioning is not the heaven of the Bible. 
Hell is also not where Satan rules. The scripture is pretty clear that it's created as a punishment for Satan. That unbelievers and all who reject Jesus as king are cast into the lake of fire. So then this text does not mean that Jesus went to hell, preached the gospels to those who had died before he was crucified, offering those in hell the opportunity to repent and believe. That's not what the text is saying. And it's tough, and and one of the reasons why this is so hard is because hell is an extremely difficult doctrine. Not because it's hard to understand what the Bible says, but it's hard to kind of think in that way. It's final. No one can leave. Hell is just as eternal as heaven is. So our temptation is to take passages like this, which are are complicated and are kind of vague, and center theology on them that makes hell more palatable. That's how this text has been abused throughout the generations. Universalism teaches that this text says that uh, not everybody dies and goes to hell. That, That when you die, everybody just ends up going to heaven. And there's nuances in that stance. Sometimes they'll say, well, maybe you suffer for a little bit, but once you kind of get your spankings or your hits on the arm, you get to go up into heaven with everybody else. But the problem is that's not what the Bible teaches. Annihilationism is another idea that that gets used with this text where you go and, and hell is real, but it's not eternal. And so you go and you burn and you pay your price and then you just kind of cease to exist afterwards. There's no more suffering there. Right? You, you suffer for a little bit, it's not eternal, and then you just end. But the problem is that's not what the Bible teaches either. Purgatory, where you go and you work your way back up to the Lord, you do the works that are supposed to be there so that you can get into God, is, is used with this text sometimes. But that's not what the Bible teaches either. Reincarnation, to a degree, will try to use this text to kind of manipulate what, what it means for heaven and hell. The problem with, with that is that's just not what the Bible teaches. And even though it's uncomfortable, and even though it's, it's, it squirms us a little bit, it's not something that we can move away from. Do you know the song that sang in heaven? Like, it gives me joy and peace, and I've said it a few times, but the song that sang in heaven when we read Revelation is worthy is the Lamb who was slain. Why? Why is that the song of heaven? Why in in the eternity to come will you and I be standing before the throne of Jesus after we've died and the Lord has, or he's come back and he's taken us with him completely and fully? Are we going to be singing, worthy is the lamb who was slain? Why is that the song that's picked? Because you and I as brothers and sisters, as as human beings, we have offended, we have sinned against, we have rebelled against God. Our problem is not that we sinned against some little person. Our problem is we sinned against the creator and ruler and sustainer of all things, of all of the universe. We offended God himself. We fought and we thought we are better than God himself. If you come up to me and you punch me, the only thing that's going to happen is you will watch a grown man cry. That'll be the punishment. It'll be worse for you than me. I don't have much shame there. But if you go walk up to somebody famous, let's say George W. Bush, and you punch him, you'll probably end up in jail. The reputation, the the authority, the, the person that you sin against matters. 
God has showed us nothing but grace and mercy and love. When God created us, he, he created us with him in the garden, having a perfect relationship, gave us absolutely everything that we would ever need, and we thought we knew better than God, and so we sinned. Hell is eternal. And it's eternal, and, and we struggle with this because our hearts are far more sinful than we want to admit. And heaven is eternal because God is far more gracious and far more merciful and far more forgiving than we realize. So what is Peter saying? Peter is saying that Jesus died, was put to death in the flesh, was made alive in the spirit, and he went down and he made a proclamation to the uh, the spirits in prison. He's saying Jesus died and he went and he told the demons, I won and you lost. That what Satan thinks is the biggest moment of victory is Christ, God himself, is hanging on the cross, breathing his last breath and dying. It's not Satan's greatest victory. That's his greatest defeat. That on the cross where Jesus died, he defeats the power of sin. He defeats the power of death. That Christ suffered for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring you to God. Jesus is giving a victory speech. You did not win. You lost. Jesus won. Verse 21. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as the removal of dirt from the body, but as a pledge of a good conscience towards God through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So we move on from that hard passage that's often misunderstood about what's going on there to this new passage about baptism, which has no arguments about it at all, right? No. If we just take what Peter says and we want to hobby lobby this thing up, chop the verse up and put it on a plaque, it's going to say, baptism saves you. We need to ask, are we wrong? Are the church of Christ right? Do we need to just march on over and say hello to Ken? Let's look at what the text says. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you. There's that parentheses, but if you jump to the end of the parentheses, baptism, which now saves you through the resurrection of Jesus. All of that is together. All of that is what we have to know. There are verses in the Bible that are less clear than other verses in Scripture. And all of the Bible is authoritative. So a rule of thumb is if there's an unclear passage of Scripture, let the clear passages of Scripture illuminate it. 1 Corinthians 15, 16-9, For if the dead are not raised, even, uh, not even as Christ has been raised, and if Christ has been, uh, not been raised, your faith is worthless, you are still in your sins, then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have also perished. If we have put our hope in Christ for uh, this life only, we should be pitied more than anyone. What is Paul saying there? That the resurrection that, that proves that what Christ did on the cross is what saves us. Romans 6, 1-14, What should we say then? Should we continue in sin so that grace may multiply? Absolutely not. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Or are you unaware that those, uh, all of us who were baptized into Christ were baptized into his 
death. Therefore we were buried with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too may walk in the newness of life. What is Paul saying there? That it's not baptism that saves you, it's the sacrifice of Christ that saves you. Galatians 3.27, those who, uh, for those of you who were baptized into Christ have been clothed with, clothed with Christ. What is Paul saying there? He's saying that if we've been baptized with Christ, we're showing that we're now Christians clothed with the righteousness of Christ. That it's not the act of baptism that saves us. It's what baptism is representing. Acts 2, 38 through 41. Peter replied, repent and be baptized, each of you, in the name of the Holy Spirit for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit for the promises for you and for your children and for all who are far off, as many as the Lord will call. And with many other words, he testified and strongly urged them, saying, Be saved from this corrupt generation. So those who accepted his message were baptized. And that day, about 3,000 people were added to them. So what happened? Peter proclaimed a message about the gospel of Jesus Christ. People were saved, and then they were baptized. Do we see how this works? We're Baptists. We have to get this. Salvation first. Baptism is a symbol of what's already happened. It does not save us. It's a sign of something that's happened. So then let's process through what what Peter is saying here. Baptism, which corresponds to this now, saves you. Now, it's not, it's what's behind baptism that matters. Not as the removal of dirt from the body, right? Physical washing doesn't save us. That's a passage we need for junior high boys, isn't it? But the pledge of a good conscience towards God, that's what baptism is symbolizing. That we've been baptized because we've committed ourselves to the Lord. So baptism, which corresponds to this now, saves you through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Apart from the resurrection, there is no salvation. Our salvation is not based upon what we do. If our salvation was on what we do, then we may uh, turn, like we need to be baptized right now because you're not saved. But that's not what the Bible tells us. It's not based upon what we do. It's based upon what Christ has done. The act of baptism is vain and it's meaningless if we detach it from the life, death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus Christ. At best, you're getting a bath. And at worst, you're getting an infection from some waterborne disease. So for us at our church, we've talked to several people, and especially kids, where I'm slow to baptize. If you repent and you turn from your spins, especially kids, we want you to understand what that means and what that doesn't mean. We've got stories. We've got kids that come on Wednesdays. One kid told me, man, I got saved last week at church. And I said, that's awesome. She's like, yeah, I just got baptized. And I was like, you know that doesn't save you. And she went, What? This is an issue we have to be clear about. It doesn't save us, and so we take it slow typically here. We don't want to rush it, but in the same breath, we don't want to delay it either. 
it is a command of Scripture, and it is supposed to be one of the first things that you do as a believer. You repent, you turn from your sins, you are saved by God, and then you're baptized. I've heard several pastors say it's the easiest commandment in all of the Bible if you really want to be honest. Everything else after that gets a lot harder. Love your enemies. Suffer well because God is going to send you through some hard times so that you can be a gospel light to the other people around you. It's a whole lot easier to go get dunked underwater than it is to live those things out. So don't rush. Don't delay. Understand what it means. And baptism is important for us as believers because of the Great Commission. Matthew chapter 28 verses 18 through 20 says this, And Jesus came near and said to them, With all authority that has been given in me in heaven and earth, go therefore make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And remember, I am with you always to the ends of the age. Make disciples, baptize, teach. Make disciples, baptize, teach over and over and over again. What it doesn't say is make converts. We're just running people through the water and dunking them as fast as we can because it makes our church look better if we have high baptism numbers. It says make disciples. A disciple is a follower of Jesus. And it's a follower in all aspects of life, not just Sunday morning at 10.50 now. But it's also Mondays and Tuesdays and Wednesdays and Thursdays. So, so make disciples of, of all nations. Right? Ira is our hub. That's where the Lord has, has planted us. But we are not limited to Ira. There are a lot of other sinners in Scurry County and in Texas and in the United States and beyond our borders. We baptize them. Did you catch who we baptize them in? the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. It's a triune God. The the same thing Peter says in chapter 1, that it's the Father planned, the Son accomplished, and the Spirit applied salvation. That's what we're baptizing people into. And it doesn't end there. Teaching them to observe all that Jesus has commanded us. That means that baptism is not the finish line that it's the start. That we're baptized after we've been saved and then we grow in the Lord from there. And how do we grow in the Lord? We plug into things that the church is doing. We come to Sunday school. We come to Wednesdays. Look, if you want to grow in the Lord, I'll tell you the easiest trick to do is to teach a class. You can sit under teaching as much as you want and you will learn things there, but when you have to prepare a lesson, you will have to learn more than everybody that you're teaching. Man, go teach some of those little kids because they ask questions that are hard. They will stretch you and they will pull you intellectually and to the end of your patience. And what the Lord will teach you is that he will give you the patience that you need even as you're screaming at little third graders. Teach and grow. It's this constant cycle for us. It never ends that we teach and we grow in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Verse 22. Who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels and authorities and powers subject to him. This means that Jesus is over everything. Did you catch in the Great Commission what Jesus says? By all authority in heaven and on earth. So if he says all authority, then what is outside of his authority there that he's commanding us? There is none. 
It's all authority in heaven and on earth. And we see in First Peter, what authority is Jesus talking about? Well, he's sitting above angels and authorities and powers. They're all subject to him. That it's King Jesus that we worship. So we take all of that passage, and if we zoom back out and we look at what Peter is saying to these people, in verse 13 he says, what, uh, Who then will harm you if you're devoted to what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness, you are blessed. Do not fear what they fear or be intimidated, but in your hearts regard Christ as holy, ready to give a defense to anyone who asks you for the reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do this with gentleness and respect, keeping a clear conscience, so that when you are accused, those who disparage your good conduct in Christ will be put to shame for it is better to suffer for doing good if that should be God's will than for doing evil for Christ also suffered for sins once for all the righteous for the unrighteous that he might bring you to God he was put to death in the flesh but made alive by the spirit do you see what Peter is doing with this he is saying you will be subject to these things people will make fun of you hard times will come persecution will happen to some degree or another it will be placed under you and it will be tough and it will be hard but you have a savior who has already been through those things for you too but you have a savior who made himself mortal and was put to death in the flesh and when he was made alive in the spirit went and told the demons you lose and I win and all of my followers the disciples who have been baptized into my name not because of baptism saving us because of the commitment that it represents those who have been saved by Jesus Christ are going to grow in my teaching which means they're going to share my gospel with other people which means more people are going to follow after me you have been defeated and there is no power within you now And I'm seated at, with, uh, at the right hand of God, the power of God, with angels and with authorities and with subpowers subject to Jesus. And so what Jesus is saying is, I understand what you're going through. What Peter is telling these people is, it feels like God doesn't see you. It feels like God doesn't hear you. It feels like God has just abandoned you in the midst of all of the suffering and persecution and the death that's going to come and the businesses that are going to close and the families that will be ripped apart. But understand this, all authorities, all powers, all angels are subject to him and he has defeated the ultimate by evil. That death, the sting is gone. Because if we're believers in Jesus Christ, the worst thing the world can do to us is send us to Jesus sooner. The shame of sin, which comes with it all the time. When Adam and Eve sin, the first thing they do is they put clothes on because they're ashamed. They try to hide from God. And God says, no, I can see through those leaves. I can see into your heart. And he doesn't abandon us. He doesn't flee. He doesn't just cast judgment on us and wipe us out. Instead, for reasons beyond anything we can comprehend, because of God's great mercy, because of God's great love, because of the graciousness of our great God, he looks at us who are unworthy to be saved and says, I will save you. But it's more than just saying, I'll just wipe the slate clean and we'll pretend like it won't happen. That means God's not just. And God says, no, I am just. And so what I will do is I will take your punishment for you. That Christ on the cross, when he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's the only moment in history when the Trinity, when, when the Trinity, when God turns, pours his wrath on Jesus the Son. It's not a wrath that he deserved. And it's not a wrath that he earned. It's our wrath. 
It baffles me on why God would do that. What do we bring to the Lord that he does not have? Nothing. He doesn't love us because we're smart. He doesn't love us because we're kind. He doesn't love us because we're in Ira and not in other places in Scurry County and Mitchell County and Borden County and wherever else. He loves us because of his great love and his great mercy. He loves us because it shows us and it shows a watching world the great glory of God. He loves us because it makes his name great. And so when the world persecutes, when the world attacks, when the world calls us names, we respond with our hope. And our hope is that Jesus is not dead, but that he is alive, seated at the right hand of God, interceding for you and I right now. So for believers, brothers and sisters who are here, the passage of the text calls us to not be scared. It doesn't matter who's president. It doesn't matter who's in the political powers at the time. God is on the throne. None of it is by accident. We can be frustrated. We can be upset. But we do not fear. God exalted Christ after death. And he will exalt us too when we die. Bring us to the Lord. The Lord has placed you and I where we are supposed to be. It's not an accident. He didn't forget about us and was like, oh great, we'll create this utopian community in Ira and we'll just throw these people I forgot about and set them in there and then I won't worry about them again. That's not what he did. He said, you're my disciple here, now go and teach. Go evangelize the lost. It's not hard to go around our community and realize there are all sorts of lost people walking around who have their hope in all sorts of things that are going to leave them hopeless. He's placed us here to disciple, to gather with other believers and uh, brothers and sisters in Christ and to help us grow in his gospel and in his word. He's placed us here to find wherever we're at in Christ and to move deeper and deeper into the gospel of Jesus Christ. I haven't emphasized this in a while, so it seems like a good time to do it. Uh, We used to talk about who's your one. One person that you felt like the Lord was leading you to tell about Jesus. One person who doesn't go to church somewhere or is an unbeliever that you would begin praying for them. That you would begin working your life to figure out ways to interact with them, to invite them to uh, church, to share the gospel with them. We read stories from the homes in Mozambique. I told you stories about Tinian. I told you stories um, about Afghanistan. We talked stories about Belgium. All of those are great, and we should pray for our brothers and sisters there and hope in the Lord, but not at the expense of where God has placed us. And in the end, no matter what happens, <laughs> Jesus wins. And so we ride his coattails into glory. That's our hope. So brothers and sisters, if you're believers in Jesus Christ, keep going. If you're an unbeliever in Jesus, this sounds odd. 
but my hope is that you would see our lives. Not as people who have it all together, but people who are severely messed up and need Jesus, because that's who we are. And that you would want that living hope that we have. That you would repent from your sins, that you would turn to Jesus, and that you would worship him this morning with us, not as an outsider looking in, but as a brother and sister of Christ. That we would be able to baptize you. We would be able to disciple you. Help teach you all the things that God has commanded you could help teach us as well. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for today. Thank you that we get to gather together this morning, God, as people from all different walks of life. Even though we are in Ira, God, that's where you've placed us and we have some kind of connection, some kind of point here. God, we're not the same. You've given us different opportunities to share your gospel, different opportunities to demonstrate, God, that our fear is not in the world, but our fear is in you. We fear you, Father. Respect you, adore you. Help us to grow in you this morning. God, I pray for Daryl and Tina as they lead us in worship. I pray for our hearts that we would reflect on your word and we would grow in you. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Six hundred five. Living for Jesus.